Looking for a break from the never-ending news cycle? Searching for fresh, new content that makes you stop and say, that's how they did that? Then look no further than Teamistry, the new original podcast from Atlassian. Hosted by filmmaker and documentarian Gabriella Cowperthwaite, Teamistry looks past the front-page headlines and into the untold stories of teams behind some of history's most groundbreaking moments. Download Teamistry for free at Atlassian.com slash Teamistry or wherever you listen to podcasts. Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by longtime healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Kat Arney. This week, we're going back to grassroots with a look at the science of cannabis. We hear why the marijuana plant makes it, how it affects the body, how scientists and doctors are using it to tackle disorders like epilepsy and chronic pain, and we ask, can it cause schizophrenia? Plus, in the news, the new breed of chemicals that are putting our ozone layer at risk, why teenage sperms are more likely to be mutants... And talking happy, how scientists have developed a tool to work out the mood of a whole nation, if not the whole world. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. One person in every three is affected by heart disease and strokes, which are caused by our arteries becoming clogged with deposits of cholesterol. This builds up inside cells called macrophages that accumulate in the walls of damaged blood vessels. Now, a team of scientists in America have developed nanoparticles that can be injected into the bloodstream, where they home in on areas where blockages are destined to occur and stop the build-up of cholesterol. Prabhas Mogi. Our technology is focused on developing a nanoparticle, which can then reach the sites of these lesions and then block the uptake of the lipoproteins, the bad cholesterol, as they say, within the lesions. And here is where it gets very interesting, because the primary character in this entire cascade is a macrophage, which is an inflammatory blood cell whose job it is to clear out these lipoproteins. It's only when this process gets out of control that the macrophages tend to become inflammatory and then recruit more blood cells and essentially lead to this festering of the lesion. I see. So when one has damage to a blood vessel, some fats can move into the damaged site and also some cells, macrophages, go in there, initially intending, in inverted commas, to clear up the mess. But actually, what then is happening is that they're making an inflammatory damaged area, which in and of itself then attracts more fat to go in. So you you almost have a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you've got damage, you get more damage. And this grows and and slowly blocks a blood vessel up. You've made nanoparticles that can home in on these sites and arrest the process of this growth of this plaque. 
Yeah, you're spot on. So how do they do that? What are the nanoparticles doing? The way that we've designed these nanoparticles was to have a high affinity to certain molecules that the inflamed macrophages express to counteract how the fats might have a way to get into the cells. So in essence, you have got a particle which pretends to be one of the bad fats that would normally go into and damage the wall of the blood vessel, and it gets in the way, stopping the bad fats from being taken up by these macrophages at these sites, so it should stop the plaque from getting any bigger. That's right. How do you know this works, and how have you proved it? In this paper, we have moved from taking the lab work in vivo using animals that have a high propensity to develop heart disease. You can take these animals, give them a suitable dose of the nanoparticles. And what was exciting, these particles not only honed in on the sites of these lesions, but also the animals that were treated showed a significant reduction in the amount of the fat that was deposited in these blood vessels. And there was a significant reduction in the obstruction. And are these particles likely to have some side effects? I'm optimistic that uh, the safety profiles look look strong. Uh, of course, this is something that we all have to verify using longer-term studies. Uh, so that will be the part of developing this technology. Uh, we have tried these out in the conventional smaller animals, some of which tend to be very sensitive to these nanoparticles, and yet the animals have shown no sign of adverse events, as you will. And I'm hopeful that these molecules are well tolerated, particularly because they degrade into molecules that are basically secreted outside the body. Prabhas Mogi, he's from Rutgers University in the US. Now, coming up, why teenage dads are more likely to father babies with birth defects? But first, if you were around in the 1980s, like me and Chris, you probably remember the concern about the hole in the ozone layer which protects the Earth from harmful UV rays. This was caused by man-made chemicals called chlorofluorocarbons, or CFCs, which escaped from the Earth's surface and then headed up into the stratosphere where they reacted with the ozone layer and depleted it. An international effort led to a worldwide ban on CFCs and the ozone layer began to recover. But now researchers led by Martin Chipperfield at the University of Leeds have shown that other similar chemicals with shorter lifespans are still getting up into the atmosphere and could be having an impact on the ozone. But what are they and where are they coming from? These um, so-called shorter-lived gases come from both natural and um, anthropogenic sources. So that's human sources? Yes, that's right. The natural sources for the compounds that contain bromine are related to ocean processes. They're released by seaweed and by phytoplankton in the ocean. And then more recently, it's become apparent that um, human activity is making a contribution through mainly chlorine compounds. What is known as compounds such as dichloromethane, they're used as feedstocks in the production of other chemicals, such as hydrofluorocarbons. And ironically, these are the compounds which were supposedly ozone-friendly replacements for the chlorofluorocarbons. In our paper, we showed some results that show 
quite large recent increases in some of these chlorinated compounds. But in fact, although we can see them in the atmosphere and we see regions where they're very elevated, such as um, Southeast Asia, around China, India, the exact sources of these um, compounds is not known. That's a topic for future research. Now we've detected that they're present. So now that we know that they're present, what are they doing? Is there evidence that they are causing a significant impact on the ozone layer? Yes, there is. I mean, certainly for the for the natural brominated compounds, we've known for a few years that these compounds reach the stratosphere and they make about a 25% contribution to the bromine amount in the stratosphere and therefore a similar proportion to the ozone depletion caused by those overall bromine compounds. For the anthropogenic chlorine compounds, we can see that they do reach the stratosphere. Their, their contribution is smaller than the the chlorine that comes from CFCs, but as CFCs are now controlled and their abundance is decreasing, and as far as we can see, the contribution of these short-lived compounds is increasing, we expect that contribution to become more important in the future. Why haven't they been banned if they're causing these problems? The treaty that protects the ozone layer, called the Montreal Protocol, has been very successful. It's one of these sort of maybe the prime example of a global international treaty to address an environmental problem. Um, So why it's been very effective at controlling gases such as chlorofluorocarbons, it hasn't um, paid attention to these so-called short-lived compounds. That's partly because um, scientists thought that the shorter-lived species wouldn't be around in the atmosphere long enough to actually reach the stratosphere, and their abundance had not been detected to appreciable extents in the atmosphere. A lot of scientists around the world are making various models of how our climate is changing, how our activity and natural activities are affecting our climate. Is this something now that needs to be added into the mix of these climate models? Well, already these climate models do include um, chemistry. In our group, we are doing lots of work which includes adding detailed chemical processes into these models because climate change is not just about CO2, which is relatively inert. It's about other gases as well, such as uh, as methane and CFCs, ozone. Um, So we're building those models. In fact, the the current state of the art is to work towards what's called Earth system models that include a whole range of processes from land surface processes, oceanographic processes, that can really get the feedbacks of how changes to chemistry in the atmosphere is, is impacting climate change. Martin Chipperfield there from the University of Leeds. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and me, Katani. Now, we are currently in the run-up to the Cambridge FameLab final. FameLab is a competition where scientists battle it out to be the best at giving engaging short talks on their favourite areas of research. Six finalists have been chosen by a panel of judges and they're set to go head-to-head on the 9th of March. Between now and then, we're hearing from a selection of them and this week, Patrick Short is with us. Hi, Patrick. Hey there. So, tell me a little bit about you. What are you doing and what is your connection to research, I guess? Right. So I'm a first year PhD student here at Cambridge. Uh, My program is mathematical genomics and medicine. uh, But my topic actually is quite different from mathematical genetics. But that's what I'm studying here so far. So what is your chosen topic? So I'm talking about the existence or non-existence of uh, extraterrestrial intelligent life outside of Earth. 
Um, what I mean, if you're working in on in genetics, what drew you to that? Is is there nothing interesting enough in your own field? <laughs> oh, there's plenty interesting. Well, the the thing about this topic is <laughs> right. Everyone is. It doesn't affect your life even remotely, right? Your everyday life, but it fascinates us for some reason. Uh, is there something else out there? Uh, people have been wondering it for a long time, and really, we uh, we don't have many answers. So, I thought I'd kind of explore why that might be. So, uh, as with all our FameLab finalists, we're going to hear from you. So, you have, I believe, your three-minute talk prepared. Do you want a little count into it? Yes, that would be great. Okay, three, two, one, go. All right. So, many of the listeners out there have probably looked out into the night sky and tried to contemplate how vast the universe is, and probably many of us too have wondered if there's some sort of intelligent life somewhere out there. Any physicists that are listening will tell you that the universe is billions of light years across. And if they know anything about Drake's equation, they'll tell you that for every grain of sand on Earth, there are a hundred habitable planets out there somewhere in the universe. So surely, with a hundred habitable planets for every grain of sand, the universe must be absolutely teeming with life. But if that's the case, then where is everybody? This was noticed by Enrico Fermi, and it's called Fermi's Paradox. And he wondered the same thing. And there are really a few possibilities why this might be, and, and scientists have debated and questioned them for centuries. Uh, and they range from the practical to the terrifying to what is, in my opinion, somewhat depressing. Uh, so possibly, there's plenty of intelligent life out there, but much like us, they have trouble getting out of their own neighborhood. Uh, we only got to the moon pretty recently. We're trying to find our way to Mars with people. Maybe everybody else has trouble just getting off their own planet as well. But then again, our civilization is fairly young in the uh, history of the universe. So if another one had started just a million years before us, say, you can, you can imagine how advanced they'd be by now. So sort of taking that to the other extreme, uh, maybe there's plenty of intelligent life out there. Uh, and they're actually watching us. We're in some sort of zoo or a national park. Uh, maybe they're studying us, running experiments, trying to figure out what will happen first. Will they all kill each other or destroy the environment? Uh, and then the, if you take that to its uh, more extreme end, then maybe they're so intelligent that compared to us, uh, that we compared to them are the same as a colony of ants are compared to us. Uh, so you've probably not recently tried to explain to your local colony of ants uh, what the uh, importance of space shuttle design is or why you need to keep an updated LinkedIn profile. Uh, chances are you just don't really bother. Uh, they communicate in pheromones and have about four words, and we have far more than that. Um, so really the, the truth, I guess, is we really have no idea. We've been searching the night sky for radio waves and haven't heard a peep for 40 years. So maybe we are all alone here just a statistical improbability in a vast universe. But then again, maybe there is something else out there. And if that's the case, then we can either stay here on Earth, continue building our anthills and digging our tunnels, or we can look towards the sky and try to see what's out there. Patrick, that was actually two and a half minutes. Oh, great. Brilliant timing. Well done. Blasted through it. Had me spellbound. I mean, it's a very important topic, isn't it? Whether or not there is life out there, because of course it tells us a lot about where we came from as well and the Precisely. likelihood of, of us happening again. Right, no doubt. Well done, Patrick, and thank you very much. That's FameLab hopeful Patrick Short, and good luck in the final. Now we come back down to Earth with a bump, because teenage dads, it turns out, might be more likely to have babies with birth defects. Cambridge University scientist Peter Forster. 
Teenage fathers have a much higher mutation rate than we have uh, thought up to now. You would have thought young fathers have good DNA and therefore their children should be healthy, at least healthier than on average. But what you see is the opposite. It is the teenage fathers who are associated with uh, pregnancies which turn out to uh, have birth defects at an increased percentage. What sort of rates are we seeing? So in the USA overall, we see that 1.5% of the births have birth defects. In the teenage fathers' cases, the birth defects increase by about 30%, so to about 2%. What do you think is going on? Well, that is a question we didn't directly ask in our current research, but it turns out that we may have found the solution because what we see in our own research is that the teenage fathers have an unexpectedly high number of mutations. It is six times higher than the teenage girls. And secondly, the fathers are even more highly mutated in their sperm and in the children they produce than uh, the fathers who are 20, 25, 30 years old. So there's a sort of blip when they first become potentially reproductively active post-puberty. Their sperm contain more genetic errors, mutations, then than they do later. I'd say so. It's the case that, to begin with, you have this hump of mutations, and uh, we don't know the reason for this yet, but there are two potential explanations. One is that to produce a sperm cell, you need precursor cells, which have to divide, and each time it divides, there's the opportunity for an error to creep into the DNA. And there might be cell divisions going on long before puberty, during boyhood, which we don't know anything about, and this is causing this accumulation of errors. The alternative explanation is that you have cells which have been quiet for 10-15 years, have not divided, have not done anything during boyhood, and now these precursor cells suddenly have to start producing sperm as puberty sets in, and they're not quite ready yet, and they have a higher error rate than would normally be the case. How did you track this down? How did you find this relationship? What we have are uh, clients who come into our institute who want a paternity test, and so we generally have the mother, the father, and the child in question, and also we have asylum seekers who uh, wish to uh, reunite their families and therefore they uh, want their children and their wife tested to prove to the authorities that they are indeed one biological family and have a right to be granted asylum as a whole. And it is these clients who over the past 20 years have generated us with a a nice database of 24,000 parents with their children from which we can see how often these mutations happen and how these mutations relate to the ages of the parents. How old does a father have to be then in order not to have this increased risk of passing on more genetic changes? Well, roughly the best time to be a father, so the minimal risk of having a a child with defects, is between 20 and 35 years of age. Uh, But to put it into perspective... Um, even a 40-year-old father or a 15-year-old father uh, will, with more than 97% probability, have a healthy child. So there you go, then. Some things do improve with age. Well, for a while, anyway. That was Peter Forster from Cambridge University. 
scientists have come up with a way to measure the mood of a whole nation by looking at the words being used. And the analysis of over 100,000 words from 10 languages spoken across the world has found that there are twice as many words with happy meanings as sad ones, as Khalil Thurloway heard from Vermont University's Peter Dodds. The motivation from the start was to build an instrument that would measure the emotional signal coming out of populations. And the way we realized we could do this is through text. We needed to cover as much of the world as we could. So we have Spanish, Portuguese, Korean, Chinese, Russian. Uh, we have Arabic. We have English. Uh, so very, very distributed. So obviously there are many languages in the world, but we, we do feel like this has spanned the globe, spanned cultures, spanned kinds of languages. How did you choose which words to analyse within those languages? If you want to say anything about a language, you have to, of course, really survey the language properly. And so we needed to create word lists based on the words that people really use. So there's no way to say, oh, here are the 10,000 most common words in English, right? You can't do that. You have to say, I'm going to go to this body of text, and it could be 20 years of the New York Times, it might be three years of Twitter. And we went to Google Books as well. We went to movie and TV subtitles. And we chose the most commonly used words. The fundamental aspect that we needed was we need to know what the happiness scores are for words. And so we asked people, here's a word in isolation, uh, you know, and it could be laughter or truck or banana. And how do you feel about the word? So neutral is one star, and then you go out to five stars of happiness, and then five stars the other way for sadness, making kind of a nine-point scale. What did you find when you analysed these words? We just noticed that there were more happy words than sad words. So that was kind of a, a curious thing. There are definitely negative words. People talk about negative things. But if you look across a large enough range of words, big enough text, we, we see confirmation, if you like, that uh, natural language is positively biased, that people talk about things and they describe them in certain ways that have, on average, a more positive skew to them. And it's pretty strong. So if you take out the words that were rated as basically neutral, one Spanish corpus has a 90% to 10% in terms of positive to negative. And uh, for Chinese books, it was something like 70 to 30. So that's kind of the range. So it's you know, more than double. Uh, you know, what we've got now is a, a really large-scale study of the words that people really use. What do you think might be causing this positive bias in languages? Language is our great social technology. And, you know, we are social beings. So I think it's encoding the fact that, you know, language is this glue that is connecting us together. Of course, we use it to talk about negative things. We, we must do that. But for the most part, we're discussing things that help us uh, keep moving along. What does this mean for the future? Our sort of main hope has been to contribute another dial on the dashboard of society next to the very traditional ones, GDP kind of things and economic measures. It's very hard to know what a billion people are thinking or 10 million or 100 million. Everyone's wealth might be going up, but if well-being is not going up, then that's, that's a problem. It may be that we need some level of grumpiness for, for societies to kind of prosper, you know, stiff upper lip sort of thing. But yeah, we need to quantify this much murkier aspect so you're saying that being able to take the temperature of society's feelings will make it easier for well-being to be paid attention to in policymaking rather than just easily numerical things like you know, productivity yeah. or tax revenue or stuff like that? Absolutely. This happens over and over again. If you can put a number on something, then it has much more chance of being taken notice of.
And that's sort of, it's, it is a mistake, right? So we, we know that well-being matters. There are certain things you can measure well, and they get much more attention paid to them. And you eventually can make the mistake that they're the meaningful ones as well, or the important ones. So instead of complaining about that, we're trying to get a number out there that people can focus on. That was Khalil Furway speaking with Peter Dodds. It would still get tripped up by sarcasm, though, wouldn't it? So if someone said, got fired today, brilliant. That would actually rank as a positive meaning. Anyway, a very interesting way of measuring the sentiment of a whole nation all at once and possibly the whole world. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and also with Kat Arney. Now, on to our main topic this week. It goes by many names. Pot, grass, dope, draw, hash, weed, Mary Jane, blow, buds and even broccoli, apparently. Whether it's taken in a bong, bifter or spliff or eaten in brownies or truffles, these nicknames refer to the drug cannabis, which comes from the marijuana plant. But as well as being used as a recreational drug by humans for hundreds if not thousands of years, it's also been put to medical use. It's the cannabinoid chemicals made by the plant, concentrated chiefly in the flowers and seeds, that are responsible for its infamous high as well as its medicinal properties. Cannabis is illegal in most countries worldwide, but this remains controversial and some nations, as well as some American states, have recently decriminalised or even legalised the substance. And while you might read one day of the link between cannabis and schizophrenia, the next you might see something about it being a potential treatment for cancer. So we're going to look more closely at some of these conflicting ideas, beginning with the marijuana plant itself and why it makes these chemicals. Greer Jackson took a trip to Kew Gardens in London. I'm sat fanning myself underneath a banana tree. I'm shrouded in a fine, humid mist, and around me is an assortment of beautiful tropical trees and brightly coloured shrubbery. All I need is a pina colada, and I might as well be in paradise. Except I'm in London, and it's a bleak winter's day outside. Kew Garden has the most incredible array of plants from across the world. Currently, I'm in the iconic Victorian Palm House, where all the tropical triffids live. But this is only one of many greenhouses, which contain many, many more plants. Ironically, though, I'm here to talk about a plant that Kew doesn't have. It's actually illegal for them to grow it, and that plant is cannabis. I'm Monique Simmons and I'm the Deputy Director of Science at the Royal Botanic Gardens Kew. Cannabis is a plant that is found in parts of Asia. There are different species, there's about three different species of cannabis, but there are actually what's termed chemotypes and they're the ones that vary in the chemical composition. They vary because of environmental conditions, but also people have selected lines that are high in the group of compounds that are often associated with hallucinogen, their activity, uh, and that's the cabinoids compounds, often called THCs. While there are only three species of the cannabis plant, there are many variations which produce different amounts of different chemicals, and these are called chemotypes. This variation can occur naturally, but more recently, humans have been selectively breeding them to contain more of a certain chemical called THC. It's the chemotypes that are the key here, where they're grown 
and what they're grown for. Because, of course, you know, traditionally in the West, uh, cannabis was grown as a form of hemp. So what's the difference between the cannabis you smoke then and hemp? Well, hemp is low in the THC compounds. Um, so you could grow a field of them and you'd extract very low levels of the active ingredients. Whereas if you're in parts of Asia, those that were traditionally used, you know, it would often be the seeds, etc., that were traditionally used in medicines, they'll have the higher levels of the active compounds, your THCs. So what is it in cannabis that gives us these mind-altering highs, if you like? THC, which is one of the compounds that's often referred to as being you know, associated with its, its highs. But there's a range of different compounds. There's about 19 compounds that are thought to contribute to the beneficial effects. And I would emphasise that the plant has got a long use for benefits for treating different forms of pain, also for affecting uh, depression. Uh, We have big challenges at the moment because it's very, very difficult to study the plant because you need to have a licence. Because it's been used as a recreational drug for people to get a high, and it can cause really bad effects on a lot of people who do take it, negative impacts, it's banned. And therefore, there's restrictions on how it can be researched. So here at Kew, you know, what we'd really like to have is more research being done on the chemistry, a better understanding of the, the use of these plants, the effect that they can have on the body. But it's clear from the work that has been done that they affect different parts of the brain, different effects on mood, plus also relaxant and on pain relief. Is it only cannabis that has these compounds that could be beneficial? The range of THCs, yes, they are very restricted. And nature often does that. It comes up with a group of plants where they are restricted. And that's often associated with the genes in those groups of plants affecting the biosynthetic pathways that will result in the expression of these compounds. Most likely the next question is, what role do they play in the plant? Precisely. I was going to say, is it like a defence tactic? We actually don't know exactly the role that they do have. They're known to have a negative effect on insects, and uh, one of the uh, activities is antifeedants for a group of insects. But they most likely have other roles in the plant. It's just very difficult to study that. Nature would have evolved them, I'm sure, for some purpose. It's expensive for a plant to produce these compounds. They must have a role in the plant. That's Monique Simmons, Deputy Director of Science at Kew Gardens, speaking with Greer Jackson. So what effect do these cannabis chemicals produce in people, though? And how? Well, with us to find out is Dr Willie Notcutt. He's a pain specialist from the James Paget Hospital in Norfolk. Hello, Willie. Hi. Hello. What sorts of chemicals are actually in cannabis? Well, there, are, there is a range of chemicals there. Um, perhaps to understand them, how they work, we need just to uh, backtrack and think of morphine. Everyone knows about endorphins and talks about endorphins, which are the brain's own morphine-like chemicals. Um, these chemicals lock on to what we call receptors, opiate receptors on nerve cells, and um, relieve pain, for example. But endorphins are very different chemically from the morphine, which comes from the opium plant. 
Now, similarly, we have um, a group of chemicals in the brain and receptors called the endocannabinoids, like endorphins, endocannabinoids. And <clears throat> these are, this is a system of, of chemicals and receptors in the brain which have a range of effects. But again, endocannabinoids that um, work in the brain are totally different from the THC and CBD, which um, are two of the main chemicals that people know about that come from the marijuana plant. And your point being that it just so happens that because the plant makes those chemicals and they bear a resemblance, chemically speaking, to what the brain is using, when they're put into the body, they can produce brain-altering effects. Yes, they, they mimic, just like morphine mimics the endorphins in the brain. And when they're in the brain, what impact do those, either the natural compounds, the endocannabinoids, or the THC and the CBD you've mentioned coming out of the cannabis plant, what effect do those chemicals have on the nerve cells in the brain? The two broad effects, I think, which are, uh, we've been studying, the first is that they, they have a, they're rather like a damping mechanism. They damp down pain, for example. They're rather like, I always think, the sprinkler system in a building. When there's a fire breaks out, the sprinkler system comes on and doesn't necessarily put the fire out, but damps it down. I think endocannabinoids um, and, and the, the uh, cannabinoids from the plant do much the same sort of job, but they also they also have a role in damping down inflammation both within the um, within the uh, nervous system and outside of it as well. I was going to ask you: Are they active only in the brain, or do other parts of the body also have the ability to respond to these chemicals? No, they, they, the, the second, outside the body. I mean, there are studies going on into ulcerative, ulcerative colitis, an inflammatory condition of the bowel. They've been used um, in treating the pain of rheumatoid arthritis and found to affect not only the pain, but also the inflammation that's going on in, in, the, uh, in the various joints that are affected by the condition. Have there actually been proper clinical trials or is most of the knowledge about the medical properties and potential medical properties of cannabis, is that based on largely hearsay and people saying, well, I've tried this myself at home in my living room and I seem to get some relief by using this stuff? Um, what's the situation with that? This really led to trials getting underway was what um, particularly the patients with multiple sclerosis were telling us. Um, but they, there's been an extensive um, program of, of, of proper um, clinical trials which have been passed by the uh, MHRA, the Home Office in, in London, as being uh, um, standardised and good quality clinical trials. Um, these, have, these have been going on now for for 15 years and are broadening out now into other areas as and again based on basic science there's been basic science onto these compounds going on now for 40 to 50 years and they and almost the clinical research can't keep up with what is coming out of the basic science labs and from animals and similar sorts of research. How are doctors seeking to administer the agent? Because obviously one doesn't want to be encouraging people to smoke this stuff. So there must be safer ways to administer the agent. 
Yes, this was a major challenge in the in the late 90s was to uh, develop extracts of cannabis that were of medicinal quality. Um, the first was to standardize the amount of THC and CBD that we were going to be using. And so it needed to be extracted from the plant so that there were no impurities. And then we had to have a delivery system. And the one that we've been currently using is principally is spraying it under the tongue so it's absorbed through the lining of the mouth. We had to prove in the clinical trials that this was safe to do it and didn't produce um, the sorts of psychosis that uh, you're going to be talking about later. And most of all, of course, that it was going to be effective for patients, that patients were going to get benefit from it and actually prove um, by clinical trial what people have described for many, many years um, as anecdotes about their own experiences, now to prove it so we can say here is a proven medicine that can be used and can be applied in different ways. And apart from the conditions you've mentioned, ulcerative colitis in the intestine, multiple sclerosis and some pain states, what other conditions might be amenable and treatable using these sorts of chemicals, THC and CBD? Well, there's there's a huge range of, if I just stick on pain, there's a huge range of pain states that don't have treatments for them or have in, insufficient treatment um, out there. But there's been some work in diabetes, uh, psychosis. There's some new, very exciting work going on with the agent cannabidiol or CBD, which really has no what we call psychoactive effect on the brain in terms of, of like the high of THC. But there's work going on with that in the treatment of childhood epilepsy and some very exciting results being seen of people who have children who have continuous fits and then being given the agent, given CBD, and finding that the fits are totally controlled. So there's a range of things going on. There's, there's also work, consideration of work on autism. There's some work going on possibly or in, into Alzheimer's disease because we know that the cannabinoids are protective and protect against inflammation, particularly within the brain. So there's a huge range of exciting possibilities out there to be researched into. We'll hear about one of them next. That's Willie Notcut. He's from the James Paget Hospital in Norfolk. As we've just heard, cannabis contains many chemicals, some of which could be used to help people with MS or epilepsy. Another disease that might stand to benefit from certain compounds from the plant is cancer. And to discuss this, I'm joined by Dr. Wei Liu of St. George's University of London. Hi, Wei. Hi, Kat. So, I mean, uh, when it comes to talking about cannabinoids and cancer, Mm. as we heard from Willie, there's the aspect of relieving pain and palliative care. But there's a whole other aspect that's very exciting, and that's the potential of cannabinoids to treat treat cancer. Hmm. Tell me about the kind of research that's been done into these cannabis chemicals and whether they have any effect on cancer cells. Yeah, these cannabis type drugs, uh, the ones we really focused on are the THC as people have been talking about and also the CBD compound which seems to have to lack the psychoactive properties and most of these work have been really performed in, in lab-based studies and also some animal studies and they've been shown to be quite 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 active and have the ability to, to really reverse the effects that cancer cells have on bodies and, and in doing so somehow reverse the whole process that we don't want to see and that is cancer breeding and growing. 
So tell me a little bit more about how cannabinoids are actually acting on cancer cells. What do they seem to be doing? Yeah, so, so, so what, we've, what we've seen is that cannabinoids, how they get in, we're not too sure. Sometimes they, they bind to these receptors that people have been mentioned, and sometimes they can actually enter the cancer cells using different pathways, which we're not too sure uh, right now. And what they seem to do, they tend to target these so-called signaling pathways. And what these are, are these certain pathways that are mutated in cancer cells, which turns a normal cell into a cancer cell. They're like the signals that tell cells to kind of keep growing, grow out of control. Absolutely. So, so these, these cells are growing out of control and, and lots of drugs out there currently at the moment are trying to target these particular signaling pathways. And what we've shown that these THC and CBD compounds can actually turn these signals off and in doing so reverse the process of cancer. Now, there's a lot of very exciting lab research, things in animal studies, but also from all kinds of cancer drugs that people are researching. They seem to work really well in the lab. You mm. get great results in, in animal tumours and then you take them into the clinic and they don't seem to work in patients. Where are we with turning the lab research and the huge number of papers that have been published into finding out whether this actually works in patients? I think we're actually uh, at a really exciting time right now. This this transition period from from lab-based research in, in transit, transiting in, into into medicine, in, into into the clinic. And uh, but have there been any clinical trials so far? Yeah, there's there's clinical trials ongoing at the moment, and uh, I, I do know one or two are actively recruiting in the UK and in the US. But the only one that's been reported in the past, the results haven't been great. The reason being that it's difficult to actually get the right mixture of, of the drugs that everyone's been talking about earlier in, in this program. So the difficulty is to optimise the doses that we need to use of either THC or CBD. And once we establish those, and this is precisely what these clinical trials are attempting to do, I, I, I'm almost certain we should get some good results. And in terms of cannabis mm. for, for cancer, sometimes people might say, oh, well, mm. you know, should you just go down to the corner shop um, I, I believe in my, my neighbourhood like yeah near, you know near the betting shop uh, buy some cannabis sure. and start taking it is, is is that going to be effective? It is, that's that's one question I get asked quite quite a bit this whole idea that can we take cannabis rather than cannabinoids and I suppose the, the answer the honest answer is we don't know there's lots of anecdotal evidence you see it on the net many many times where cannabis oil can be used uh, effectively to treat cancers I'm not saying this is not the case but um, we have to we live in an age where clinical trials have to be performed to ensure that safety is of, of paramount importance and people who do take these so-called cannabinoids aren't, aren't doing more harm than good. And uh, I, I suppose it all harks back to this idea of, of aspirin and we talk about aspirin quite quite a bit. This whole idea that aspirin is, is quite, quite a good drug that can alleviate pain but the aspirin came from the white willow and no one suggests that we should be chewing on white willow. I mean the, the what thing I understand about the original, the white willow compound, mm. um, because then it was changed and made yeah. to be less irritating to the stomach and to be better with the cannabinoid chemicals from plants. Are they actually the best drugs, the best cannabinoid drugs. Yeah, so, so the difficulty is that the cannabis plant itself uh, contains quite a, quite a few people say between 100 to 200 different chemicals and each one has their own activity and there's lots of data to suggest that some cannabinoids, the minor cannabinoids, can actually reverse or antagonise the activity of things like THC and CBD and so what you could do by smoking cannabis or taking cannabis the whole plant itself is to re- remove or reverse um, the actual effects. So the counteract it. So, you know, you're doing one good on one hand and actually counterbalancing it. And so we have a situation where um, the patient doesn't benefit at all by taking whole cannabis. And I suppose one thing, Kat, that's important to stress is that some of these cannabinoids can actually antagonise medicines that people are already taking. So if you get a cancer patient who's taken, I don't know, um, cisplatin or some kind of drug, 
cannabis can actually antagonise that if not taken carefully. So if someone's, uh, yeah, if you look on social media, things mm. like Facebook, for my day job when I'm not doing this, I work for Cancer Research UK and often we get people saying, weed's the cure, yeah. man. Yeah. You know, is, if I put it to you bluntly, is cannabis the cure for cancer? What's your take on this? Well, um, First of all, there's, there's no all-out cure for cancer, unfortunately. But what I can say is that these cannabinoids, these, these cannabis-based substances can have a role to play if, if used correctly and possibly in combination with other drugs. You can actually reverse certain aspects of cancer. You probably won't cure it, but you go a long way in, in, in making cancer more of a chronic condition, something you can live with, and you end up dying with cancer rather than dying of cancer. And I suppose that's, that's the ultimate aim. Of course, everyone wants to, to cure cancer, but unfortunately, there's no one single drug that can do that. And in terms of where the research is going now, we heard from Monique that it's it's mm. hard to do this kind of research. Give us a picture of maybe over the next five years, because I certainly watch with interest in America where the legislative framework's eased up a bit. Yeah. Where do you think things are going to be going? Where are the needs to research these drugs? Sure. So so if, if we take a medicine that can treat cancer as one that can target these cell signaling pathways, which I alluded to earlier, cannabinoids can do that. And we've, we have lots of data to suggest that. And if we're serious about trying to find a new medicine, uh, to, to fight some forms of cancer, we really need to investigate these cannabinoids. I'm, I'm not saying we should investigate cannabis. We might inv investigate cannabis as a whole plant. But right now, we have certain chemicals from the plant that can work against cancer. And that's something we should be doing. So hopefully, in the next few years, we can start exploring these. What's the mechanisms? How do these drugs work? What drugs can we use these with? And essentially, just to maximise the opportunities that these plants, these drugs can, can, can provide us with. And I guess, ultimately, getting benefit to as many patients patients as possible through this kind of information. Absolutely, and that's, that's the most important thing. Let's, let's not forget, we're not talking we're not talking about cannabis, the, the drug that causes you these, these highs. We're talking about the potential of these cannabis-based drugs uh, that can help patients with cancer. Thank you very much. That's Wei Lu from St George's University of London. On the streets, cannabis is one of the most commonly consumed illegal drugs. In the short term, users describe sensations of feeling hungry, that's known as the munchies, developing red eyes, perhaps tripping over your words, a feeling of relaxation and giggling, and also sometimes paranoia. But what about the long-term effects? Recent news headlines announced that one in four cases of mental illness might be due to super-strong skunk forms of cannabis and that the risk of psychosis is five times higher for people who use this form of cannabis every day compared with non-users. But does cannabis cause mental illness or are people who are destined to become mentally ill just more likely to use it in the first place? Susie Gage from Bristol University works on the link between cannabis and psychotic episodes. She's with us. Hello, Susie. Hi. Well, first of all, what actually do scientists and doctors mean when they say psychosis? What is that? Psychosis is one aspect of schizophrenia, but you can also just have sort of psychosis on its own. And it refers to things that are present that shouldn't be there. So you might have hallucinations, so you could hear voices or see things, but hallucinations can affect any of the senses as well. Um, you might experience delusions, so you might feel like someone's out to get you, feelings of persecution, or you might feel like you're a very important person, like you're sort of a king or something, but no one realises those kind of thoughts that don't really have any real-world truth to them. And there's also sort of thought insertion or broadcast or withdrawal where you think that someone else is interfering with your thoughts or other people can hear your thoughts, that sort of thing. So why might cannabis, let's not say that it does or it doesn't at this stage, but why might exposure to the chemicals in cannabis provoke those sorts of symptoms in a patient? 
Well, the reason that it was uh, first sort of investigated was because intoxication effects of cannabis can induce transient psychotic-like experiences. This has been shown in randomised trials as well, that if you give people THC, the compound that we've been talking about a lot through the show, that these will induce transient psychotic experiences. But of course, that's not the same as saying that long-term use will cause something like schizophrenia. And that's much harder to research because you can't randomly assign a group of teenagers, half of them to take cannabis for however many years and half of them not to and see what happens so you can only look observationally and the people who choose to smoke cannabis are going to be different from the people who choose not to smoke cannabis for all sorts of reasons other than the cannabis use including potentially because they're already feeling in some way mentally unwell or unstable and they find perhaps in their case that cannabis helps to put them on a more even keel or helps them to cope better with the symptoms they're experiencing. Well, absolutely. So um, that's obviously not necessarily the case, but it's something that when people are conducting these observational studies, they have to be really careful to try and exclude anyone who already had any kind of psychotic experiences before they started using cannabis in order to try and get a bit of a better handle on whether it's actually the cannabis causing the psychosis. So what work have you done to try to disentangle those two and try to work out which it is, whether the cannabis comes first and causes the schizophrenia or whether the predisposition to mental illness comes along and causes people to use more cannabis? So I've been using a data set based in Bristol where I work, which is called Children of the 90s. This is a longitudinal birth cohort. So lots of pregnant women in Bristol and the surrounding areas were recruited in the 1990s. And them and their kids have been followed up ever since. So the kids are now not kids anymore. They're in their 20s. So I'm not actually looking at schizophrenia as an outcome. I'm looking at psychotic experiences, so sort of non-clinical, unusual experiences that people might have that are sort of akin to the to psychosis. And what I found was that although we see an association between cannabis and later psychotic experiences, like lots and lots of other studies have shown as well, what I found was after I took into account a lot of the other things that might have also been impacting on this, the size of the association actually got quite a lot smaller until we couldn't be really sure that it was actually any difference from no effect. So where do these headlines from researchers elsewhere in the UK that surfaced in the last month saying that maybe one in four cases that's, you know, that's a lot, isn't it? One in four of, of mental illness cases and presentations might be due to exposure to super strong forms of cannabis and that, in fact, people are five times more likely to develop these mental illnesses if they smoke this stuff. A lot of these headlines came from one particular paper and the paper itself is absolutely brilliant, but the headlines slightly over-egged it, as can often be the case when it's such an emotive issue. So this particular study was looking at initial hospitalisation for first episode psychosis. So this is a, a more severe outcome than the one I've been looking at. And what they found was that people who'd smoked skunk every day had a much higher likelihood to have been a psychosis case compared to a control group that they also sampled. But they're very clear in their journal article that... Um, they can't be sure that the association seen in their study is causal. They also split their sample into people who reported using skunk and people who reported using hash. So they kind of used these terms as shorthand for skunk being very high in THC and very low in, in cannabidiol, which we've been talking about earlier, whereas hash being slightly less high in THC but having a sort of equivalent amount of cannabidiol. But this was only people self-reporting what type of cannabis they were using. They didn't collect samples or anything, so they can't actually be really sure. But there does seem to be some evidence that cannabidiol might be antipsychotic. That's something that's being sort of actively researched at the moment, which if was the case, their results would be 
well on the way to helping to try and tease this apart, whether it might be that cannabis that's now grown under hydroponic lights, which seems to be much higher in THC, but much lower in cannabidiol, could be what's sort of driving this link that we see between cannabis and psychosis. Susie Gage from Bristol, thank you very much. We also still have with us uh, Willie Notcutt, who's a pain specialist from the James Paget Hospital in Norfolk, and also Dr Wei Lu, who is a researcher looking at the impact on cancer cells of cannabis. So they're still with us. So I thought we could bring everyone back together again and just ask for their opinions on some of this. Willie, on the basis of what Susie's saying, um, what's your take on the appropriate testing and exploration of these other chemicals to see what else we might be able to achieve with cannabis and minimise some of these side effects? Well, I think in a way we have done, this has been done already. I mean, the work that's been done over the last uh, 15 years on the cannabis extract called Sativax has shown virtually no psychoactive effect at all and certainly no more than one would expect with an equivalent group of drugs which we use, for example, for pain management or managing spasticity. The, the compound we've been using is a blend of THC and CBD, which has been known for since the early 80s. CBD has been known to block some psychoactive effects of THC. It's been a very well-received drug. We found that um, when used properly as a medicine, we need very low doses of it um, in controlling spasticity or in controlling pain and patients yes they may get some side effects of dizziness drowsiness but nothing equivalent to the sort of effects that um, your last uh, correspondent was, was talking about. Thank you and Wei Lu what about the point that some people are asking us uh, what about the fact that some forms of cannabis when you smoke them for example can be very carcinogenic? Yeah, it's some people always argue um, that the carcinogenic uh, properties could be due to the mixture with with, with tobacco. Uh, whether or not cannabinoids or cannabis themselves are are cancerous, really the jury's still out. But it's, it's really, I suppose, this whole idea that the the, the tobacco you mix it, um, which was mixed with it, can actually be the one that's causing the cancer. I was going to ask, in terms of things like the one clinical trial that's been done and what people are working towards for using cannabinoids for treating cancer, how would they be administered? Presumably you wouldn't go to your doctor and they hand you over a, a massive bifter. <laughs> Hopefully not. Um, no, when it, comes, when it comes to clinical trials, I think the ones that have been tested predominantly were, were ones that were used uh, as a spray. And one of the Sativex people have talked in the past, and that's, I think, the major one or one of the ones that people have been investigating. And we hear also of people, for example, on the internet using cannabis oil uh, again, and, and I, th I believe sort of ingesting it, eating it. Yeah. Is that a good way of delivering cannabinoids into the cancers, into the places where they're needed? The problem with, with, with uh, ingesting cannabis or, or in any form is the whole idea that these cannabinoids have different types of chemicals that can actually antagonise one another. And depending on how you get it into your system, you can actually cause more harm than good. And that's the reason why people try to purify in, 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 the, uh, in the first instance to see if the, the concept is, is correct. That is, that is they are anti-cancerous. And I did see something about the risk of increased pesticides and things like that in these oils because they're yeah. concentrating them right down. Is, is that also a risk? That, that does also depend on, depend on, on the source of, of these marijuana plants. You can actually get other things... Uh, interfering with the whole procedure of, of, of extraction and that can cause more problems than you need. Susie, there's an interesting tweet here which is coming from Jimmy Cullen who says, are cannabinoids getting more research attention because they're a very promising option now or just because cannabis is a hot topic? I think that's a good question but in terms of 
schizophrenia. Schizophrenia is such a debilitating disorder and of all the risk factors that are known about it, most are really, really hard to modify. So if cannabis is a modifiable risk factor for psychosis or schizophrenia, then it presents a quite a unique opportunity so that's why I think there's lots of research in it rather than it being a, a sort of hot topic. But there have been longitudinal studies being run uh, looking at cannabis since the early 1990s. So perhaps it's getting more media attention now because it's a hot topic. But I think the research has been going on for a long time. One tweet we did have to at Naked Scientist, someone saying, is it just frustrating that uh, these chemicals that are so useful and so powerful are also bound up in a to all intents and purposes, recreational drug. And this is a major frustration in terms of stopping research effort. Yeah, I, I, that's, that's a very, very good point. Um, and uh, this whole idea that it's cannabis, that the so-called evil, which is the psychoactive uh, substance that's, that, that's, that can possibly be uh, helpful in, in cancer. And, and things I, I, I normally say to people is, if we were to call it something else, let's call it the BBC drug for the sake of, sake of argument, uh, would there be uh, more interest in it? And, and, and if so, uh, what, what, where's the problem? So you're really arguing that we should be talking about the cannabinoids, the Absolutely. chemicals themselves, yeah. as in we would talk about, you know, aspirin rather than white willow. Absolutely. And, and, and it's because it's, 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 all, it's all a murky, it's all mixed together, cannabis, cannabinoids. And it's important to stress that these are cannabinoids, these are agents that have been derived from, from, from the cannabis plant. Um, which have these anti-cancer properties, and, and that's something that we should really be exploring. And people are trying to make synthetic cannabinoids, yeah. so these kind of chemicals that look like THC or mm. CBD, and trying to make those in the lab. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, these, and these synthetic ones have been trialled in some cases, and uh, in, in lab-based studies, they've also been shown to be effective in, in certain situations. And people argue they're not as effective as, as, as the other um, as the other drugs, the natural, the natural stuff. stuff. <laughs> it's probably because they contain other impurities, which which are supporting the activities of the these THC CBDs, but but again, people do not know what's going on. Suffice to say that these cannabinoids, these these, these chemicals, do have an effect. Terrific. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Wei Lu from uh, St. George's Hospital Medical College in London. Uh, thank you to all our guests, in fact, this week. Susie Gage, Willie Notcutt, and also you heard Monique Simmons earlier in the programme. Now, to finish us off this week, a cool Khalil Thurloway has been watching his P's and his Q's for our question of the week that was sent in by Johannes. Why is it that I want to urinate more frequently in colder weather? To answer this call of nature, we spoke to Dr Matthew Mason from the Department of Physiology, Development and Neuroscience at Cambridge University. This phenomenon is known as cold diuresis, diuresis being the production of more dilute urine. The idea is that when it's cold, your body tries to conserve heat by constricting the blood vessels in the skin. That means that less heat is lost to the environment. However, if you constrict the blood vessels to the skin, it means that relatively more blood accumulates in the interior of the body, and that tends to raise blood pressure. A good way to imagine this is as if constricting blood flow in one part of the body squeezes the blood into other parts, just like if you squeeze a balloon at one end, the other end bulges out. In response to raised blood pressure, the body wants to try to get rid of a little bit of the water in the blood to bring the blood volume, and thus the blood pressure, back down to where it should be. This response prevents your body from being damaged by excessively high blood pressure, just like a safety valve on a boiler. What happens is that, in response to the raised pressure, the levels of a hormone called antidiuretic hormone will fall. With reduced antidiuretic hormone, the kidney produces more dilute urine, and that translates into an increase in urine production. Thank <laughs> you.
What a relief. Next time, Claire asks if our furry friends are giving us more than just love and affection. I'd like to know what parasites you can catch from your pet. And thanks to Matt Mason for the answer to Johannes' rather pressing question. And if you know which parasites are bestowed on us by our loving pets, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com, you can find us on Facebook, you can tweet at Naked Scientists, or get stuck into the debate on our forum. That's thenakedscientist.com slash forum. That's it for this week. Thank you very much to Georgia Mills and Greer Jackson for production. Next week, do join us as we journey through time, recreating some of the most fantastic and important science experiments throughout history in a special live show. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the Institute of Continuing Education at Cambridge University. It's supported by Rolls-Royce, the Wellcome Trust, the EPSLC and the STFC. My name is Chris Smith and thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.